John Clayton. Powered through the Alaska Airline Studios. Streaming live at 710sports.com. On demand everywhere on the 710 Seattle Sports app. Now, John Clayton. And good morning, everybody, on this uh, sunny uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, we're right now, I think what you can see is I've had to do my voting for the AP and think that most people now have the Seahawks as the number one seed in the NFC, which, of course, uh, that's kind of interesting to see because with New Orleans having just laying a dud, great start, 10 nothing, and end up losing the game 34-24. to uh, 20, It was kind of amazing to see that one. But we've got lots to get into here. Let's get into the five biggest stories of the day. Number one. Right off the top, both Bruce and Marquise uh, are going to have to have surgery. And so that means that they will be done for the season, and uh, which is really a big blow, you know. And I know a lot of teams lost players this weekend. You know, we, we certainly felt it with, with both those guys. Both those guys have a lot to offer your team in their attitude and approach and style of play. And so it'll be difficult to replace those guys in that regard. But um, guys did step up in the game and will, will continue to do so. Uh, we'll let you know more about how you know, we deal with those uh, the, the replacements in that later in the week. If I have to, if I don't have to, I won't tell you. And so that's uh, Pete Carroll talking about the two ACL injuries, two of seven this weekend so far. Bruce Irvin, Marquise Blair out for the season with uh, ACL tears. And so now it's a matter that Ugo Amadi will take over at the slot position and be the nickel back. And, uh, you know, as far as you would have to think that, uh, you know, they're probably going to have uh, – Jordan Brooks take over at weak side linebacker and then move KJ right over to the strong side. That would be the case. But now, you know, who's going to fill in the gap as far as the pass rush at the Leo position with Bruce Irvin? I mean, you know, Benson Mayo ended up playing like about 65 plays uh, on Sunday. So he had to handle just about everything. And then, you know, they had, uh, you know, base, um, Alton Robinson's going to come on. We'll see if they make any moves today. But certainly it's a tough situation. A defense that's given up a lot of yards. Uh, defense that uh, still uh, needs to continue to grow, but they made the one stop, and they're 2-0 and right now. And fortunately, with what Russell Wilson really cooking right now, they have the ability to uh, you know win these games. And, of course, this is going to be a tough one coming up, tough one going against the Dallas Cowboys. So the uh, Cowboys come in, but they're more injured than Seattle. They didn't have their starting offensive tackles out there. Cornerback uh, Anthony Brown ended up going on injured reserve. So they have their own issues. Injuries are a big part of Week 2 in the National Football League. Certainly one of the most injured uh, Sundays and weeks I've seen. I mean, so many teams are going to have to battle back. San Francisco's got plenty of injuries. Philadelphia has injuries on the offensive line, so you can't avoid them, and that was expected because, again, with no offseason program, you have to kind of gut it up and then try to go it. But uh, this week and probably even next week, you're going to see a lot of guys get hurt. Number two. Um, Offensively, certainly McCullers, uh, to give him a ton of credit, he was on top of his game as well. You know, we didn't get a hit, I don't think, till the sixth. Uh, Lopey got the double to get us going there, and then, you know, obviously the Ty France, uh, the double to score the first run. And you know, we thought we had him on the rope second, third. He punches out a couple guys. But uh, Evan White got a breaking ball, and he didn't miss it. So the Mariners get a 6-1 win over Houston. Uh, got some run support late. Eight innings for Marco Gonzalez, who was sensational. Gave up uh, basically uh, one walk, had six strikeouts. And so now the uh, that's the second win against the 
uh, Astros and one that uh, gets them a little bit closer. Still going to be tough to get the playoffs and catch the Astros. We're down to six games right now, but hey, at least they got the uh, you know the victory. And so that was one that uh, Marco Gonzalez gets a lot of credit. They got good run support late in the game, and service had to be happy about that. So the series is going to continue tonight uh, as they get game two here in the next to last home game for the Mariners this year. And then, of course, they head off to Oakland to try to finish off the season. But right now, Mariners still not eliminated, but still alive, and they get the 6-1 to victory. Number three. Carr want to throw for it, and a wide open Alec Ingold, the fullback. It's going to use Waller as eye candy once you get down here. He's just trying to get the ball to Alec Ingold out in the flat. The whole defense goes with Waller, and he just slips Ingold in for the touchdowns. Great play designed by John Gruden. Here's Carr. Take a shot. Why wouldn't you? And it is caught. Waiting for the signal. And it is a touchdown. At least the celebration is on. Zay Jones. So, a big comeback by the Raiders. They were down 10-0 and looking like there was going to be a one-sided game. But... Drew Brees didn't really throw the ball all that well. He didn't have Michael Thomas out there. And so here, here's Drew Brees, 1-1 uh, one and one with the Saints, and not looking like the number one seed, that's for sure, uh, as they ended up losing the game 34-24. to 24. Uh, Richie Incognito had to leave the game. He's been bothered by an Achilles injury, so you have to wonder, did it get worse? Is it going to be one that can get done for the season? And really what you're looking at is that the uh, Raiders looked pretty good after the slow start. You know, Derek Carr was pretty not, not good in the first quarter. But after that, for three quarters, he looked great. And so maybe the Raiders have a chance to make the playoffs. Certainly it looked good in Vegas and the fact that that was their debut. No fans in the stands and are not supposed to be any this year. But uh, the Las Vegas Raiders uh, getting an impressive uh, victory over the New Orleans Saints, one that nobody, I think, uh, thought would happen. And so the Saints now have to start to rebound and see where they are offensively. I mean, Drew Brees right now is only getting 4.82 yards in a for yard average per attempt, which is certainly not going to be good. But, uh, you know, right now the uh, Saints are 1-1. One and one. That's the same record as Tampa Bay. And even last week, I mean, Drew did good stuff. He barely completed 60% of his passes against Tampa Bay. Nevertheless, it's a Raiders getting the victory 34-24. to 24. Number four. Rolling is mortal. Fire for Yeldon in the corner of the end zone. Caught. Touchdown. A one-yard touchdown pass from Bortles to TJ Yeldon. And the Jags extend the lead here at MetLife Stadium. So, I mean, things are a little bit desperate right now for the Denver Broncos. You know, they have Drew Locke with a rotator injury that's going to be, you know, maybe three, two, three, maybe five weeks that he's going to be out. And how desperate are the Broncos? Blake Bortles is now going to go and sign with them to try to compete to be the backup. They have Jeff Driscoll there, and so he might still get the chance to be there. But Blake Bortles is going to come in because, again, you're talking about uh, you know three, four weeks maybe that Locke's going to be out. Then to make matters worse, Cortland Sutton, their uh, wide receiver who went to the Pro Bowl last year, he blows out an ACL, so he's out for the year. Uh, they've had injuries at the receiver position. They don't have Vaughn Miller, and so uh, where Denver might have had the chance to be the number two seed in the uh, AFL, I mean the uh, a, the AF the, in the West, uh, end up now in a situation where they might have to concede a little bit to the Raiders and maybe a little bit to the Chargers. Uh, Chargers, of course, uh, you know they have their own injury issues, but Denver, you know, they get the victory and or they get the loss. They're zero and two, and things aren't going well for the Broncos. Number five. 
Houston's reign in AL West is finally over. The Oakland Athletics have clinched their first American League West title since 2013 on Monday with an assist from their rival. As Houston lost 6-1 to to the Seattle Mariners, the A's are now the first team in the majors to lock up a division crown in this pandemic-shortened season. Since last season ending ended, the A's have emphasized the need to win the division given that they won 97 games each of the past two years and lost in the AL wildcard game in each of those seasons. They are now in the playoffs for the third straight year in the sixth time in nine seasons as the Astros now only lead the Mariners by three games for a playoff spot. Yeah, and of course, I can see if they can catch up, but Oakland's in, the Yankees are in. A lot of the teams have already clinched now in the last couple of days, but the uh, A's uh, really having a pretty good run right now. Uh, so, And Houston's not having a good run, but now the A's take the AOS title for the first time since 2013. And so now, what happens with the Mariners? Can they catch the A's? I mean, they need some help if that's going to happen because they only have two more games left against them or the the, the Astros. And, uh, you know, but again, there was a victory for Oakland, and Oakland's really sitting pretty good right now. I don't know if there's been too many surprises. I guess there's been some surprises. You know, San Diego looking good, Tampa looking good, but nevertheless, it's the Oakland A's winning the uh, AL West, and that's uh, three straight years, as mentioned, as they have been in the playoffs. Hey, of course, uh, the one thing that uh, we've got to try to do here is take a look and get into more of the stuff, and of course, uh, you can listen to the show via the 710 Sports app. It's powered by the Dubin Law Group. Coming up next, we're going to talk a lot about DK Metcalf who looked really good in his game against the defensive player of the year last year, uh, Stefan Gilmore. Uh, stay with us. It's the John Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle. Under Further Review with John Clayton. We'll review the play. Well, certainly the reviews of DK Metcalf <clears throat> were good last year, even better this year <clears throat> in the sense that he's off to quite a start. And of course, that was the interesting part because I, you know, you know, you didn't know, you kind of figured it was going to go this way. What Bill Belichick does, because yeah, one, one, one of the strengths of Bill Belichick is to take away your strongest weapons. And so here he had uh, two different plans. You know, one he was going to put uh, DK Metcalf and have him with Sheldon, uh, with uh, spent, you know, uh, the defensive player of the year, Stephon Gilmore, taking on him because you have six-one cornerback going against a six-five wide receiver or six-three wide receiver, and so. Then what they did is they had one or two guys kind of angling on uh, Tyler Lockett. You know, and Lockett you know wasn't able to get deep, but he was able to get a lot of passes. I think what did he have seven catches? But you know what Metcalf was able to do was able to get 92 yards, a big touchdown play, and five catches against uh, Stephon Gilmore. And of course, how in, how big was that? Gilmore only gave up one touchdown last year, and uh, very few people tried to throw on him. And so that turned out to be good. And so I know that Pete Carroll is seeing how DK Metcalf is really emerging. I, I think you're seeing the, the the emergence of a great player, and and uh, it's not just it's because of his mentality that's going to take him. He's got all the physical skills that you want, but he like I've said, he recognizes it, and so he's going for it. And so I really I'm really proud of him. I'm proud of the way he's handling himself, and uh, he's he's not going to get too full of himself. He's going to be humble through the whole thing, which gives him a chance to be really great. Well, the great the great part is how physical he was because I mean it was like a a battle with hands and everything, but from both sides, Gilmore and Metcalf through the course of the day, and that uh, was really strong. <clears throat> so DK 
looks to be one that, uh, you know, at, at times, uh, you know, he's not going to be the number one guy because that's going to be Tyler Lockett. But now you can look at maybe this is possibly emerging kind of like you saw down in uh, Tampa Bay with Mike Evans and uh, Chris Godwin having one of the best duos in football. And, you know, I, you know maybe could they, he continue to evolve? He's going to be playing at a Pro Bowl level, but he's off to such a great start. And so that's encouraging. But overall, I think you can see Metcalf is one that uh, he responds to the challenge. And, of course, I know he's talked about it, that you know he remembers being in the doctor's office in college and having some injury issues that they thought maybe he would not be able to continue his career even through college. <clears throat> and now you can see he's he trains hard, he works hard, he learns, he picks up things. He's developed a very tight relationship with uh, Russell Wilson. All that seems to be working in his favor, and uh, that's that's an encouraging thing. But I know one thing that Pete Carroll talked about is you know how that matchup, and it had to be one that uh, if you're going to be Metcalf, you have to respect. It's like, okay, we're going to put the defensive player of the year on you. And, of course, that matchup uh, certainly brought out the best in DK Metcalf. Yeah, this is as good as it gets. This is exactly an indication. It's good it happened early in the year, early in his career, uh, because he, he's he is a brilliant kid. And he, he knows he knows what just happened, and uh, and he's thrilled about it. And, you know, Michael, you could I know you could take a lot of pride in, in what that that battle is all about. That was a legitimate one on one. We're going at it all night long, and and uh, uh, the thing I like about it best is the way he maintained. You know, and I was after him a couple times. You know, don't go too far now. You know, don't because the officials were talking about it, and they were they knew that there was something going on there, and and they were looking to make a call. You know, maybe throw a penalty that we wouldn't want. And uh, DK did it exactly the way he should do it. Pretty impressive the way he's been playing. And, of course, uh, you saw him emerge last year. I mean, he gets an immediate, uh, in, at least he's getting the recognition pretty early because he was voted in in the NFL uh, Network's Top 100, which, of course, that's a big honor to be able to do that You know, because now you have two guys on the Seahawks in that category because Tyler Lockett was in the 50s, but uh, Metcalf getting a chance to do it. But, you know, I, I still have to look back and think about how silly is the NFL or uh, the NFL teams when you have a guy he went to the combine he's 6'3 229 pounds he ran a 4-3-3-40 he lifts like an offensive lineman his dad was an NFL offensive lineman then he doesn't do well in the shuttle and that uh, costs him <clears throat> has him go all the way down to the uh, second round at the bottom of the second round where Seattle was able to trade up and get him I, I just find that amazing that uh, you know you have just because he didn't do well in the shuttle, he didn't do well in the cone drill, so he ends up paying the price. That one's kind of illogical. And I don't know what you think, uh, DJ, because uh, DJ Wilder with us uh, today running the show. It's like, uh, it's like, what a big mistake the teams made having him slide all the way down to the second round. Yeah, I totally agree, John. And I, I want to ask you this question first. Would DK Metcalf be doing what he's doing now if he were on a different team like if he didn't have russell wilson because russell wilson kind of has a history kind of like what tom brady has done with the patriots even with less than what russell wilson has had really other than julian edelman and rob gronkowski really in the 2010s tom brady hasn't gotten a lot gotten a lot to work with but he's made every receiver that he's had better 
would DK Metcalf be doing what he's doing now without Russell Will? Like, well, does Russell Wilson play a big, bigger part than we think? He plays a he plays a big part, but I think what it comes down to is that uh, you know Metcalf has to take the credit because he's got the talent and he's got the work ethic and he's doing all the right things. <clears throat> you have to wonder in college, you know, they just had him basically do you know one route. Uh, down the left side of the field for the most part and not really, you know, take advantage of his full ability. I mean, again, you know, what uh, you, you can give Russell Wilson credit, but I think you almost have to give, you know, his parents credit for getting somebody that can be that big, that fast, and that talented. Yeah, he's he already looks phenomenal, and especially because, especially going up against a defensive player of the year. You got to like what, what we're seeing out of DK Metcalf so far. And he's kind of becoming the best receiver. Nothing against Tyler Lockett, but he's kind of becoming the best receiver on this team, which is a good problem to have when Tyler Lockett is still as consistent and as good as he is Mm -hmm. and how good he has been since uh, 2015. So I just wonder what's the next step for DK Metcalf because he already looks like a pro bowler. Could he truly be an all-pro receiver? And I don't know... If he can be, just because I feel like the passing attack for the Seahawks might still might not get enough recognition, even though they are letting Russell Wilson throw more early in games. I just wonder what the next step for DK Metcalf is, because he already looks like he can be a perennial Pro Bowler. Yeah, and again, I look at it just like uh, you know, it, it, like you saw what's developing, uh, what had developed down in Tampa Bay with, with two good receivers down there, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. And what you kind of wonder is like, it's funny. I know that. Uh, uh, Bruce Arians getting blasted a little bit because he's not throwing to the tight ends, even though he's a two tight end offense that he runs. But <clears throat> so much of that is because they get the ball to the receivers. And of course, you know, they only had, I think, one catch each for Will Disley and Greg Olson <clears throat> as much as they use. And they're using the three, two tight ends probably. 30% more than what they did last year. Or actually, no, even more than that, because they were like 30% in the first game. I'm still waiting for the numbers in the second game, what they were, but the 30% two tight ends. <clears throat> but they, you know, they're there blocking and trying to create uh, running lanes and ca- pass-catching lanes and doing all those different things. And what Bruce Arians says is, no, because we're throwing the ball to the wide receivers. And that's what they did in this week. But how respected do you have to be that you get uh, Stephon Gilmore and then you're able to have a better game against him than he had against Metcalf? Well, the the funny thing is, I have a piece of sound here, John, if I can find it for you. Yeah. Stephon Gilmore was not too keen on <laughs> with uh, DK Metcalf uh, torching him here. Let me play that for you. It was just two players, you know, competing. Um, I feel like he was blocking me after the whistle, um, you know, just just trying to keep my poise, but uh, playing very physical in between the lines. And um, that's sometimes that's what it, that's what goes on. So um, just, just, just two players competing. And then he had another time where he wouldn't even acknowledge the touchdown pass that Metcalf threw. So, I mean, I think Metcalf is already – not making friends in the National Football League, especially when he has a great game against Stephon Gilmore, I think he has a chance to be a top five receiver. Yeah. But I don't it, – it's interesting to look at the history of Seahawks wide receivers as well. I was kind of thinking about this. Is he going to be the best wide receiver that Russell Wilson's ever had? Because you got to think it's obviously Doug Ball and the entire Lockett's right there. Can DK Metcalf become better than those two? Hmm, could. I mean, let's put it this way, as, as good as Tyler Lockett is, and right now Tyler Lockett is looking Doug Baldwin good, you know, and Doug Baldwin probably goes down as, uh, you know, the second best receiver 
on this in the franchise history. <clears throat> but you know, say Tyler Lockett's got four four speed, but he doesn't have four three three speed, and he's not as big, he's not as physical as what you see in Metcalf. I mean, you know, Metcalf talent wise is actually more gifted. That's why I just think it's so amazing that he didn't get a chance to uh, get drafted until the bottom of the second round. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean. It's great for the Seahawks, John, but oh, yeah. uh, you got you got to think if you do a redraft of that draft, he goes top five. Yeah, could maybe be. even top yeah. ten or top ten. Yeah, but at least first round. I mean, but because I know that you know he was supposed to have first round grades, but the shuttle, which is of course that's something you don't do in the NFL. I mean, it's like you know you don't have to go through cone drills and shuttles and things like that. You just have to go beat your man, and he's able to beat his man and did it at a very a very good level. And so again, that looks like that could be a steal. Hey, tell your smart speaker to play 710 ESPN Seattle. Remember, you can always listen to 710 on your smart speaker or the app. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Shannon Dreyer as they get through the last week of the season and a big series here against the Houston Astros. It's the John Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle. It's John Clayton. Powered through the Alaska Airlines studio. Two hours every day, 10 to noon. Streaming live at 710sports.com. On demand on the 710 Seattle Sports app. And joining us is Shannon Dreyer, and of course, uh, Mariners in the last week of the season, of the regular season, trying to see how they can do. And I guess uh, to start off, Shannon, it's like, uh, boy, they've now doubled their win total against the Astros uh, <clears throat> with their second win this year. And then, of course, it was a 6-1 victory that Marco Gonzalez looked sensational. Yeah, he did look good, and uh, I think you have to just kind of throw away everything that you saw last year and folk and the years before and focus on what you've got in front of you right now, because this is what it's all about for them right now. And I think that that's why that was such a big win for them last night. It's a young team and they're going up against an Astros team that you know, it's not the same as your 2017 through 2019 Astros team, but they certainly have been in this position before teams that are accustomed to going the postseason and that are built for the postseason play differently in September, and I think the Mariners are finding that as they run into the tougher teams. So to have them go up against them, to have them go up against the A's and get wins against them, I think it's so big as far as the learning goes, and I don't think it's much of a coincidence that those two wins against those two teams had Marco Gonzalez on the hill. Yeah, I mean, he and he's just been so consistently good, particularly once you got past the first, you know, maybe month or so. And I mean, just like every time he's out there and, you know, he keeps that earn run average at uh, three, you know, a little over three uh, and like what, 308, 306. I mean, which is good. I mean, what what's working right for his pitching? Well, I think, you know, we've watched him develop and change. He obviously is not the same pitcher that they traded for. I mean, when he came over, he was more of a fastball change-up guy with a very, very good change-up. But he came over coming off of a surgery and had uncertainty about that and was still a young player, and it took some time to really find who he was. And he added pitches. You know, the cutter obviously became a big weapon for him. Uh, he started using the curveball a little bit more. He wasn't throwing the fastball as hard, found out that he didn't have to do that. And somewhere along the line, he has learned how to pitch. And you put in with that the mentality that he has. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing as he continues to get better. And something that really has kind of taken me aback with him this year is, is he continues to get better. I think that he is somebody that has been underestimated for a long time because he hasn't necessarily been a stuff guy. He hasn't had the plus-plus pitch or the big fastball or anything like that, but what he does have is he has 
just immaculate command of his pitches, and he has the ability to read swings, to read takes, to game plan, to use those around him, to use his resources as they're put forth to him, to make adjustments within a game, and to learn as he goes along. And we're seeing that, and we're seeing how you know the cumulative effects of uh, everything that he has done for the past four years really, I think, come to play right now. And as a result, you're seeing his ERA almost a full point lower than where it's been for the last two years. And yeah, it's a smaller sample, but I don't think there's any reason to believe that if he goes out on any given day and has his typical command, that he can't stay in there for seven innings and he can't, you know, limit a lineup uh, to three runs and then do what he did last night as well. He just um, has really put it all together. And just when you think that it's oh, this is Marco Gonzalez, this is what he's going to be, he continues to add. And uh, now it's just kind of, I think, silly to say that he's any one thing because he's not, he might not even be there yet. So uh, he has been a, a huge pickup for the Mariners. Uh, it's huge that he decided that you know he would commit and sign the contract in the offseason and has been, you know, I think, I would say, one of the positive developments of this year. Not that you weren't expecting him to be positive, but the fact that he has been even better this year, I, I think, has been uh, just a huge plus for the Mariners. Yeah, no doubt, and that's the that's the good part about it because you know, and it it certainly even goes better when you have a night, a night like yesterday, uh, where you get the run support. Run support is a good thing, and you know he, he got it his last start too against the A's. He didn't quite have it, but he battled. He gave up five runs. But he battled. He stayed in the game. It was a seven-inning game, and the Mariners came back and got him five runs in the last two innings. And uh, he got the runs last night as well. And sometimes, you know, there's an aspect of that that isn't by mistake. If you've got a guy that is your guy, your leader, your win day, and on top of that, a guy that everybody respects and looks up to in that clubhouse, you know, what's to say there's not a little extra when you're out on the field for him? You don't know it. You don't do it intentionally, but these guys want to win for him. There's no question about it. So uh, it's been a great combination to see every six days out there. Yeah, no doubt. And that's been the fun part about it. And, of course, now it's a matter of trying to see how they can uh, get through these next two games. Uh, what do you think the chances are that they can see if they can get the sweep? Because certainly, you know, when you have Marco Gonzalez out there, there's confidence Uh I don't think there's the same confidence, certainly, with some of the pitchers. Newsom, I guess, goes tonight. Uh, but how do you think that can play out? Well, Newsom's coming off some rocky outings, and uh, one where he got hit, and thankfully nothing was broken in his wrist. But he only pitched an inning and a third in 19 uh, days. And I think we saw the effects of that his last time out. If he is on, he's another guy that can hit his spots, obviously doesn't have the experience but if he sticks to a game plan you know he was watching what marco did last night i think one of the tougher things for the mariners is they will run into a left-handed pitcher and that's something that has definitely given them trouble throughout the year they're hitting i believe 188 against lefties this year now the offense has got to kick in and give runs too but um it's going to be tough with uh, framber valdez and then zach Greinke, of course a veteran who uh, you know, can make his way through just about any ball game. So I think it's going to be tough. They were talking about taking it one day at a time and, and, and that kind of stuff. But what's really fun is that when you talk to these young players in particular, when you talk to a Justice Sheffield or a Justin Dunn or an Evan White, you look at the odds and the odds are not good. The odds are very not good, but they're not looking at it that way. They are seeing this as a true playoff push and trying to get you know, not just the wins, but everything they can out of the experience. And I think that some of that goes back to 
uh, bringing them all up together, keeping them all up at Double A, where they did the same thing. They were playing for a postseason that entire uh, that entire year, and things got very intense at the end of the year for them. And you can tell that this is something that they enjoy, and this is something where they want to be, and that they understand that you do need to turn it up. That's something that Justin Dunn was talking about yesterday. So uh, I think it's obviously a tough road for them by the numbers, but win or lose, they are getting so much out of this. Oh yeah, no question about it, and that's that's very encouraging. What do you think that uh, Jerry Depoto will do to kind of fix the problems against going against left-handed pitching? Well, I think that you know it, it's up to the guys that they have. I think that it's very much, um, you know, you look at you're not trying to address one problem right now. You're trying to bring up a group, and, and so you know there will be more focus on that. Could you bring in some? Um, you know, the extra bat, the 26th man, you can make sure that you're a little bit more balanced with the right-handers, yes. But at this point, it's about, you know, getting your guys to the point where they can hit big league pitching and from both sides. It's not ideal to have platoons in multiple positions, and I don't think that's something that they really want to do. They like the versatility of moving players around, but I don't think they want strict platoons. And with the young players, I don't think that they want to pigeonhole them that into that role. Uh, this early. So I think it's going to be a matter of just seeing it and, and working on it and, and seeing if you are able to progress guys uh, into a more of an everyday rule. And hopefully you don't have guys that you are going to have to look at and you are going to have to replace when there's a lefty out there or a tough lefty. But for now, uh, I think he lets the guys uh, that he's got out there go and, and sees what happens. Yeah, no question. So that's going to be the challenge to see how they can do. And of course, maybe in the off season they can find some way to try to you know get it over. Yeah, I know you've spent much time down in Tacoma. What are you seeing as far as some of the young guys in some of those inter squad games? Well, it's what I what I saw is, and this is really tough. What I saw is it wasn't what I expected it to be. I think that when it was talked about, I, I think we had the thought that they were going to be down there and they were going to be playing a lot of inter squad games and there's going to be a lot of competition and it's going to be really exciting to see Jared Kelnick against all the Mariners' top pitching prospects. And what it really is is a lot of those top pitching prospects they're being very careful with. A lot of them they had to be. Some of them were in areas during the shutdown where they could not do anything. They're young arms. They have to protect them. They have to take care of them. You don't have full teams down there. The games that I've seen, I had Christopher Negron, a coach on first base. And the games, and I say that loosely in quotes, are dictated by how many innings are scheduled for the pitchers and their pitch counts. So, you know, some of them are three innings at the most. Some of them are seven innings, and you're only seeing them two, maybe three times a week. So what's been going on down there is a lot of work, but has not been a lot of competition. And it's it's not comparable to what they would have gotten in a minor league season. Uh, it's good that they got more instruction and that I think the Mariners development staff perhaps had the opportunity to get more hands-on and more familiar with some of the guys. But it's it's no replacement for what they would have gotten in those games. And the good news there is, is we learned yesterday, and I've got a post up on 710sports.com and how the Mariners are going to handle this, but uh, the Mariners are have been able to schedule uh, 20 games in Arizona after the season with uh, the Padres, who they share a complex with, and then the two surprise teams, the Texas Rangers and the Kansas City Royals. So they are going to select a group, and they're going to run. It's going to be kind of a combination high-performance camp, which is what they run right after the season anyway, and kind of instructional league. And they should have enough guys at that camp to put together full games. Plus, they're going to get the 20 games, which will be played about every other day down in Arizona. 
against other teams. So a lot of these prospects are finally going to be able to face teams wearing different jerseys and have some real competition. Shannon, great stuff. I mean, it's hard to believe, though, it's the last week of the regular season. I mean, this 60-game schedule kind of zipped by despite all the different things and all the different challenges. It did and it didn't. In some ways, it feels like it was a full 162 because nothing was easy this season. But I think the biggest thing is, is well, it was just 60. I, I think they got as much out of that as they possibly could. And I think that a lot of questions that needed to be answered have been answered. So, you know, regardless of what happens next week, if they are able to make it somehow into the postseason or not, uh, I know that the Mariners are very happy with what they've seen in terms of development and what they've been able to get out of such a short amount of time. Okay, well, Shannon, uh, eventful week coming up here, and thanks for giving us the updates. All right, John. Okay. Hey, be sure to check out the Professor's Notes at 710sports.com. The Professor's Notes are brought to you by Infinity of Tacoma at Fife. Coming up next, we're going to go behind the lines and check out what's the latest in the National Football League. John Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle. John Clayton. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On demand with the 710 Seattle Sports app. And DJ Wilder, I'm kind of figuring out what the New Orleans Saints are, you know, because certainly I had to give them great reviews despite a bad performance in the first game, but they did beat Tampa Bay uh, and, you know, got a, and was really dominating over Tampa Bay, uh, even though, you know, Drew Brees completed barely 60% of his passes. But what I saw last night, particularly as the game went on, I didn't see a good Drew Brees. I didn't see a defense that I think should be more talented. And basically, I just saw, you know, John Gruden just uh, whip up on him for three quarters. And so now you kind of wonder, particularly with Michael Thomas out, you know, how much that takes away and where the Saints are heading for the next few weeks. Yeah, speaking of Michael Thomas, he must, like, we already know how great he is. He's the best wide receiver in the NFL. But apparently, to all, especially to all the people who don't think wide receivers are really that important, he he's a major factor of this Saints team. I mean, Alvin Kamara, a running back, led them in receptions last night with mm-hmm. nine for 95 yards. Of course, he's a great receiving back, always has been. But it really seems like Drew Brees, he, what was the stat that our very own Paul Gallant threw out this morning? He's only averaging, what, 4.8 yards in the air yeah. per attempt? And that goes back to uh, Brett Favre toward the end, I guess, you know, to 2009, that uh, that was the last one about 4.82. And so you you can maybe you make, and of course, I know that uh, some of the B people started even tweeting it out today. It's like, I know uh, people are going to start wondering about it, but it's got to be part of the conversation. Is age catching up to Drew Brees? It has to be because it's just... I think Michael Thomas was is one of not one of he is the best short route runner in the National Football League, and I think with even Drew Brees he wasn't at four point eight last year, but he was right above that. He still wasn't averaging that many airs through or yards through the air last year, but I think it worked well with a guy like Michael Thomas who runs those slant routes and those drag routes so well, and his run after the catch is the best in the league as well. I think it just I think it just work better for what Drew Brees' style is now. People like, you know, Ty Montgomery is a real burner. You know, like Jared Cook, like I know he's more of a possession tight end. Emmanuel Sanders is a real good deep route uh, wide receiver, but that doesn't just bode well with Drew Brees anymore, especially when he doesn't have Michael Thomas, who really complements how Drew Brees plays now. 
Yeah, but that's the thing that's so interesting is that uh, you go back last year and you look at Green Bay, you look at New Orleans, and you say they didn't even uh, New England. They didn't have a lot at the wide receiver position, maybe other than one guy. And because you know, a- other than Devontae Adams, what did uh, Aaron Rodgers really have to throw to? You know, then you look at New Orleans. I mean, you know, they they were starving for somebody other than Jared Cook, the tight end, and uh, you know Michael Thomas. Uh, and they really struggled in that regard. And so it's like, okay, so they get Emmanuel Sanders, and that was a good addition, but he wasn't a factor. And without Michael Thomas, it's so different. And yet here's Aaron Rodgers putting up monster numbers, and they didn't hardly do anything at wide receiver. I think, well, I think what's helped with the Packers is that those rookie wide receivers, those young wide receivers have really developed. We always kind of hear, like, we just talked about DK Metcalf about half an hour ago. He was kind of an anomaly. Usually wide receivers kind of struggle in that first year because in especially now in the co- game of college football they the route tree isn't that diverse uh, like we're saying with Metcalf he really just ran a go route and a post route really and now you know you have to run you have to learn how to run like 20 different routes in the NFL and i think with with the packers guys like Alan Lazard and um you know guys like that i think they're learning really how to run these complex routes and i think they're really developing nicely with the saints i think this group of wide receivers would work just fine if they had michael thomas but now now you now you're dealing with a bunch of specialists i don't think it bodes well for them i want to ask you this question john are the raiders good they might be <clears throat> i know i know what's good is that they've got a very good offensive line I was projecting that Josh Jacobs could end up being the uh, NFL's leading rusher this year, and he's off to a good start. But it all comes down, and <clears throat> what I don't know is what how good they are at wide receiver. But uh, you know, they did they're using two young rookies, and you know they they they're doing some good stuff. I mean, Waller at tight end is sensational, and you know, defense that's still going to be a challenge. But it wasn't as much of a challenge in the game, you know, because they actually after the ten points they gave up early, they pretty well shut down the Saints. And so maybe they are. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of thinking. Like uh, Darren Waller, by the way, fastest tight end in the NFL. He his run after the catch oh, yeah. as well is amazing. But yeah, Josh Jacobs, I really liked him last year. Derek Carr looked great, but if if someone like Hunter Renfro can stay healthy, because he had to exit the game again late last night, but if Hunter Renfro, who showed flashes last year, second year wide receiver out of Clemson, if he can just stay healthy, I think he could be a really good slot receiver, especially on third down. They're also kind of relying on someone like Nelson Aguilar, nothing against him, but he is definitely known for his drop passes in Philadelphia. Eagles fans could definitely tell you a lot about that, but I really like Henry Ruggs. Jason Witten was a really good veteran pickup. He's not going to be a guy, be the guy that gets 10 catches. You know, that's going to be Darren Waller at the tight end position, but Jason Witten is a really good second tight end to have, especially after he looked pretty decent last year with Dallas after coming back from a year hiatus you know, in the Monday Night Football booth. So the Raiders look pretty good. I know the Panthers, they might not be the best team. I don't think they're definitely one of the worst teams in the NFL, but they're going to be, to me, they're going to be pretty middle of the pack. We don't know how good the Saints team is. And I think that's something to watch for for Seahawks fans because the Saints were definitely a huge Super Bowl pick to represent the NFC right up there with the 49ers. And, of course, we've talked about the 49ers being ravaged by injuries and everything. So we don't know if there'll be their record will be any good or as good as we thought it would be. They could probably still get to 10 wins, but we'll see. But do, are we sure the Saints are any good? Right now we don't. I mean, we really don't. We're still trying to figure it out uh because uh in in the end it's like okay, uh they 
uh, I, I just admit again, I, 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 you know, we end up probably making too many rash judgments in the first couple weeks of the season. Definitely. You know, I thought for talent, you know, with all the talent that they had, they were the most talented team in the NFC. I just thought that that was the case, and you know, so far uh, that hasn't necessarily worked out. But uh, you know, again, you know, they did get Tampa, the win over Tampa, which was huge. But uh, and I still think defensively, I'm just stunned that they gave up 34 points, particularly with what they have at cornerback and what they have at the defensive line. Yeah, on on paper, you got Marcus Williams at safety. Marshawn Lattimore is one of the best man-to-man corners in the NFL. His rookie year, the QBR that he allowed. Quarterbacks would have had a higher QBR if they just threw the ball into the ground other than targeting him. That's, that's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And then you have Malcolm Jenkins, who's a great veteran safety. Of course, he was in Philly for years, and at strong safety, he's a great pickup for them. They have Cameron Jordan, who's a top three pass rusher in the edge rusher in the NFL. And then Janoris Jenkins was a great veteran pickup as well. A corner, can't believe he's still playing. By the way, but on paper you would think they would be a lot better than they are and last night uh, of course i know they got the win over tampa but they they still got a lot of points there too and 34 points to the raiders and again maybe the raiders are just good but Derek carr isn't someone we really dub being this close to 300 yard passer in games you know like Derek carr is a really good game manager to me but him going for 282 yards and three touchdowns and no no interceptions. He was sacked three times, but he had a pass rating of 120.7. On paper, the Saints should not be giving up those type of numbers to really a lot of quarterbacks. No, I would agree. I mean, that's something that just caught me by surprise. But, hey, it's a surprise start to the season. You just don't know week in and week out. At some point, though, it'll start to settle in, and we'll find out how good both these teams are. Well, one thing we're going to get to do is we get together with Sean Salisbury for some four downs. It's the John Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle.